Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have an author of a book that has just recently been released called The Third Temptation, and it's written by Austin Rogers. Austin is a regular contributor to LCI, and he is a graduate of Biola University and Western State Colorado University. His new book, The Third Temptation, Rethinking the Role of the Church in Politics is the topic of today's discussion. Austin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doug. So talk about the title, The Third Temptation. I think some people who have been libertarians for a really long time might get a hint of what that's about, but mm -hmm. uh, where where does that title come from? Sure, yeah. So it comes from Jesus's third temptation in the wilderness. Before his ministry started, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. Actually, if you read Luke's account, it's the second temptation, but I thought the third temptation sounded better than the second temptation. So I went with the third temptation from Matthew's account. So yeah, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and after multiple other temptations by Satan, Jesus is tempted with all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And by this, I basically interpret as referring to political power. Satan offers Jesus all the earthly political power that exists in exchange for one momentary act of compromise, worshiping Satan. It's both a compromise of Jesus's morality and uh, his relationship with God the Father, because we are meant to worship only God. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting to think about why Satan saved this for the last. I think it's I think it's the ultimate temptation because it's all of the power in the world, all of the political power in the world. And if you think about it, Jesus did come back so that he could be declared king over his people again. That's what Jesus and God wants ultimately mm -hmm. in in history. And that's sort of the the end toward which all of history arcs is God becoming king over his creatures, these creatures of his likeness again. That's sort of the relationship that he wants to have with them. And that's why Jesus came, to, to reinstate that relationship. So in Satan's mind, he's saying, I, I will give you exactly what you came to earth for. But that involved an act of compromise, a compromise of values and principles. And mm -hmm. uh, Jesus came to earth, not just to reclaim God's authority over his people, but to do so in a certain way. Political power was not the way that Jesus was meant to carry out his mission on earth. Political power was a way to avoid the painful self-sacrifice of the cross. I think the same temptation is offered to the church in a different form. We have a special and important role to play in the world, spreading the gospel and living out the kingdom of God. And those necessarily involve affecting and changing the human heart, just like the mission of Jesus. It involves 
maintaining a certain relationship with God, having him as our king and the ultimate authority over our hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. It involves inviting others into that relationship with God and shaping our lives and our behavior around God's standards. And it involves self-sacrificial love of others, just like Jesus. And none of these things can be accomplished through the channels of government. Another aspect, sorry, one more, one more aspect about the third temptation that I want to point out. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, and that's a clear hearkening back to Israel's 40 years wandering the wilderness before they uh, entered the promised land. Jesus came to redeem his people by demonstrating faithfulness in all the ways that Israel was unfaithful to God. Mm-hmm. all the ways that Israel failed to show faithfulness to God. One of the ways Israel was unfaithful was in asking for a human king and a human government for themselves. Up until First hmm. Samuel 8 in Scripture, Israel had no king. Scripture says that God was their king, and that was the way God wanted it. God rescued them from their enemies, We see this many, many times with the story of Gideon, for instance. The whole reason that God narrowed down Gideon's army from 30,000 to 300 was to show that he was their king. He was their savior. God taught them right and wrong through the judge system. When there were disputes among the people, they would go to these these special people that, that had a relationship with God, that heard the voice of the Lord. And they would resolve their disputes through these people. And in that way, God taught the people of Israel his standards. He taught them about right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was the way he ruled them. He was the ultimate authority. He was the direct authority over them. And so when the people of Israel asked Samuel, the judge, for a human king, God tells Samuel don't worry, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me as king over them. God wanted to keep that relationship of direct authority over his people. And and their desire for human government was basically tantamount to unfaithfulness to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus rejected Satan's offer of all the earthly kingdoms of the world, not just because it involved moral compromise, worshiping Satan. He also came to reinstate the kingdom of God, the the kingship of God, that relationship of direct authority of God over his people. That's sort of the relationship that God wants to have with us. That's the reason he created us. That's That's the end of history. Uh, and in Revelation, we find that, you know, we will live with God. He will be our king. We will um, be together. That's all God really wants in history mm-hmm. is to be together, but with his people. But that naturally, because of who God is and who we are, involves a hierarchy, an authority structure. God is the ultimate authority, and we are his people, his citizens of his kingdom. So I know I'm rambling a little bit here. No, no, it's all good. I, you know, one of the things that, you know, strikes me is that the, in your sort of summary 
of where the, where we're going here is that Jesus came and in the parlance of what LCI has been kind of talking about a lot is like Jesus is Lord Caesar is not right. It's kind of our little mantra or one of our little mantras. Yeah. And the political power that the Satan was offering to Jesus was almost like, Hey, you can, if you uh, want, you could be Caesar. Exactly. Like you could have, you could have this in the way that Caesars have it. And that was, you know, something that obviously Jesus rejected as you know, God would have wanted um, the Israelites to reject a king. And then there's the whole like mediator thing, right? Like, you know, that the king is not the mediator. There's Jesus is the mediator, not, you know, between God and man. So just a little bit of backstory on the book. How long did it take you to write this? And like, what kind of prompted you to write this? Yeah, so it's been in the process for about five years. I think I started it around 2015. What started it was a... (laughs) You know, I had a professor in, in grad school who, you know, I went to grad school for, to get a master of fine arts in creative writing. And he said that the start of any book is somebody looking around and seeing that there's something missing or reading a book and thinking, well, I can do better than that. And <laughs> I'm not really saying that this is uh, me uh, thinking I can do better than that, but this was me thinking that there is something missing in uh, the world. There's, there's a perspective that's missing. I think there's lots and lots of books written from a certain political perspective, approaching scripture, sort of with a, a certain filter, certain political filter already in place, approaching scripture. And then there's plenty of books that only look at what scripture says, but doesn't really try to apply that to our contemporary political environment. Yeah. And I wanted to to write a book that sort of did both, that took a bottom-up approach that completely avoids political labels and completely avoids trying to apply a certain 21st century political filter onto scripture. And I thought that that was just something that is missing. Mm-hmm. Especially when I read that passage of of scripture from Matthew about the temptations in the wilderness, something just clicked in my mind. And I thought that this is something that applies to the church as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of when I decided to write the book is when I, I realized the third temptation is not just something that was offered to Jesus, but it's something that offered that is offered to the church every day. Yep. Well, you're kind of leading into my next question. Um <laughs> Without, <laughs> I, maybe you did try this. I don't know. I know you've seen the the, the, the the basic outline, but you know, you and I probably both believe that the Western Church has kind of gone astray in its sort of in, in a number of ways, and and I think you and I personally probably have too, right? I mean, we're, we're not perfect, and we're still trying to get it right as we live day to day, but yeah. that overall, the church seems to be pining for power. Uh, whether you see the power of the progressive Christian left or the you know the evangelical right, it seems as if political power is sort of one of the major platforms. Like we need to sort of have our hands on the wheel or or yeah. involved in mission control, if you will, to use a different metaphor, because I love mixing my metaphors. 
Yeah. So <laughs> you and I both know that there's kind of a problem here, right? And so you might, you, you know, <laughs> you, you said that there's two ways, two reasons why somebody might write a book. And one of them is like, you know, you read something and I can do better. It's like you and you're seeing that the church can do better, right? Like you're, you're writing because there's a need to be filled. And you're also writing because there's a, a way of doing public life, of doing politics that could be better in the church. And you want to be part of correcting that direction. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so the follow-up to that is like, how, what is, what is happening? Like, is the church causing damage to the message of the gospel by being enamored with power? I, it's almost a rhetorical question, but I'll let you answer it. Yeah. Let me provide the foundation for that by backing up yeah, a sure. step and going back to, again, to the to third temptation. So Jesus in the wilderness, he came to be faithful to God in all the ways that Israel failed to be faithful to God, right? And, and one right. of those ways, a very important one, is uh, in Israel's demand for a human king to replace God, a human government that would replace that relationship of God's direct authority over them. So anytime we as the church attempt to accomplish tasks that are meant for us, mm-hmm. that God has given to us, Anytime we do that through the levers of government, we are in effect giving in to the third temptation and compromising the relationship that God wants to have with us. Mm-hmm. So the the core takeaway of the book, and um, I promise your listeners that I'm a better communicator through writing than verbally, <laughs> but the core takeaway of the book is that the church cannot fulfill its mission by means of the sword, which is a symbol for government. And the government cannot carry out its earthly role by means of the cross, which is a symbol for the self-sacrificial mission that Jesus came to carry out. And that now we, as the hands and feet of Christ, are to carry out in this world. So going back to your question, how has the American church or the Western church gone astray in uh, pursuing this mission? which is to spread the gospel, to make disciples, Mm -hmm. to demonstrate, to live out the kingdom of God and to show Christ to the unbelieving world. Well, I have a whole chapter in the book on the early church and the early church's relationship to politics in the Roman Empire. The early church fathers drew a sharp contrast between church and government. In their view, the mission and the method of carrying out the mission of the church mm-hmm. is just completely different than the mission and the method of carrying out the mission of the government. Church manuals forbade Christians from remaining in roles that would require the use of force, like being a soldier or a magistrate, which was basically a, a local judge. And they believed basically without using this term in a sharp separation of church and state. So that sort of view existed for the first 300 or so years of the church. Mm-hmm. And then came inter- Emperor Constantine, who converted to Christianity in the early 300s AD. And then afterward, he began patronizing the church. Um, he integrated it into his government. A lot of believers were joining the military and joining the government. Slowly, this starkly countercultural encounter political religious sect whose sole political slogan 
used to be Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, began morphing and conforming to Roman culture and politics. You know, this is the age when the word church stopped meaning the body of believers that are usually meeting in somebody's house or Mm -hmm. before Christianity became legalized, meeting literally underground or in a cave or under a bridge somewhere uh, because it was illegal. The word morphed from the body of believers to a building, an elaborate big building because Constantine began uh, commissioning either existing pagan temples to be remodeled into churches or whole new churches to be built in the tradition of Roman pagan temples, Mm -hmm. these grand opulent buildings. And that's just one symbol of many, many, many ways that as the church invaded the Roman empire, the Roman empire also invaded the church. And um, by the end of that century of Constantine's century in the 300s AD, the church began that century being a small but rapidly growing persecuted minority that had no political power to being an empowered, politically empowered group that then turned around and did the same persecution to pagans and to people who did not you know, believe in Christianity, specifically Trinitarian mm, Christian, yeah. Christianity. Right. And I think it's sort of a symbol of how earthly politics corrupts. And, you know, the more we let it invade our hearts, the more we let it shape our identity, the more our identity will just be conformed to the world. And yeah. it'll look the same as everyone else around us. Yeah. So in the 21st century, I think we're living in a situation where a lot of apolitical identities are increasingly becoming subservient to one's political identity. I'm talking about like identity politics here. And I think both sides, left and right, have their own version of identity politics and what Mm -hmm. defines the tribe, who's in and who's out. One of the biggest threats to the American church today is captivity to one form of political tribalism or another. I think when our identity in Christ becomes subservient, whether we realize it or not, to our political or cultural identity, we have unknowingly given in to the third temptation. Mm. And we've sort of eroded or compromised the relationship with God that God wants to have with us. You know, one way you can think about this is just how does one respond to something they disagree with on social media? You know, on on Facebook, <laughs> you know, if you hear exactly if you hear somebody <laughs> say, "Oh, I don't believe that Jesus is Lord" or something like that, or I, "I don't believe that Jesus existed; he was just a legend." You know, I think the typical response of the American Christian is like, "Okay, well, you you have a right to your view. I, I disagree, but I'm not going to say anything about it." Versus someone saying on social media, you know, I think the government should pay for all healthcare, single payer healthcare, or um, whoever kneels during the national anthem is uh, a traitor to this country or, you know, something like that. Right, of yeah. course it spurs, you know, you get so fired up and it spurs this huge fight. And, you know, 
I think it, it's very telling what we are willing to let slide and what we are just are find totally abhorrent and we cannot let it slide at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right about the way in which we, you and I and other people observe. I mean, and again, I'll just throw myself under the bus too. I'm guilty of it as well that, you know, I've not responded, you know, well on either social media or in actual discussions with people or in even just how I treat other people, right? In ways that are Christ-like and the testimony of the church is as a whole is getting, it's tainted with, with a lot of, you know, political pursuits that don't seem to be very pure. And, and it does become all about power. We do succumb to the third temptation, uh, not realizing that that's what's really happening. We, we think of it as like, oh, well, we're doing this for the Lord, right? Um, because if, you know, if we have these laws in place or if our voting block is, you know, successful, then we'll prevent a one world government or, or whatever. I mean, like everybody's right. going to come up with, these are just random things that I've, that I've heard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to some extent it's like, well, okay, maybe you're right, but that's not really your role. Like God's in charge of history and God will, you know, bring about what God wants. And our response is to remain faithful and follow Christ. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, and maybe we have to talk about the defining element of the church versus the defining element of the state. Because this is going to be, in terms of like the arguments in your book that are about what's the role of the state to the Christian or what's the role of the state in the world are probably going to be pretty interesting to libertarians, uh, especially libertarian Christians. Yeah. Although I don't know if it'd be too interesting to non-libertarian or non-Christian libertarians. But anyway, let, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, obviously then that gets into like what what's the role of government and there's a lot of, you know, Christian libertarian differing views on that. So yeah. uh, what is the role of the church? What is the role of the state? How do they differ? How's God using them? I'll let you kind of go with those. Yeah. So I think the church has a big, important, expansive role to play in the world. It involves both evangelism, which is making disciples, and social betterment, which is the abundant life that Jesus said that he came to bring in John 10.10, came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I think that abundant life is both spiritual, something that only God can give us through the indwelling of the Spirit, and material. And what about that material part? Does God always directly, supernaturally provide for our needs? Well, obviously, we live in a fallen world. We know that that is not true. But we find Jesus talking in the Gospels over and over again, probably more than about personal salvation. We find Jesus talking about money and wealth and caring for the poor and the vulnerable. Yeah. Why is that? You know, I think connecting the dots here, I think God uses the church as his frontline agents to, to bless the world with this abundant life, which yes, is spiritual, but also involves a material element to it in blessing the world. So we know that far more of Jesus's teachings concern social betterment rather than how to be saved. And by social betterment here, I just mean um, caring for others, caring for the vulnerable, caring for those who have need. And I, I think that orienting our lives around social betterment is an inherent part 
of sanctification, which is just a, a theological term that means becoming more Christ-like. Mm-hmm. And I think too many Christians tend to think either consciously or subconsciously that justification, the, the theological word justification, which is, in my opinion, basically just means the change of relationship between belief and trust and faith in Christ or non-belief in Christ to belief in Christ. They think that justification is the end of salvation, but actually it's the beginning of salvation. It, it opens the door to the Christian life. So in a word, I think what defines the church is the cross, this symbol, this ultimate symbol of self-sacrificial love of others. Um, we are to be a people that are defined by the fruits of the spirit, by radical mm-hmm. generosity and hospitality. And all, all of those virtues require voluntarism and wholeheartedness. But the, the task of the state, the role that I believe God has assigned for the state to play is, you know, the, the symbol of the sword basically comes from Romans 13. And, um, this, this symbol, other, you know, in contrast to the cross, basically refers to force or the threat of force. Uh, in the New Testament, I don't think the government is just the things that we do together, as mm-hmm. some folks like to think of the government nowadays. It's the institution in society that God uses for a specific task to restrain evil through the use or threat of force. At least that's the, the role they are to play in the current age. In the age to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, God will be our sole government, and we won't need human government. But for now, we still, you know, like weeds growing in the wheat, the kingdom of God exists right alongside kingdoms of this world. And this kingdoms of this world, God uses to restrain the magnitude of human evil that otherwise would exist. Now, the Bible isn't a political science textbook, but I think each word of the definition of the government that I just gave can be found in scripture. I think you can piece it together from various mm-hmm. passages of scripture. Yeah. So would the you, fundamental... Just a, I want to ask you a question about what you yeah. said about, you know, the the role of government there is sure. used by God. I don't think you're saying, and you just may want to make it clear, because I think sure. libertarian ears are going to say, wait, what? Depending on how their interpretation of Romans 13 or other scripture passages, what you're not saying is that God, that everything that governments do is being used by God for good. Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely not. I mean, I go through Romans 13, for instance, phrase by phrase, and I try to, to, to pick it apart using scripture to understand what Paul is talking about here mm-hmm. and what exactly is the relationship between the church and government that he's trying to teach us here. First of all, I think there's there's a sharp contrast between the church and the government. For instance, you find in Romans 12, Paul tells the church never to avenge, but to leave that to God. And in Romans 13, we find how God chooses to carry out that vengeance, to carry out his wrath on evildoers. It's through the government. God uses government, secular human government, as his avenger to restrain evil and punish evil in this world. And I think that is sort of the the limited role that God uses governments to, to accomplish. 
Let me mm-hmm. give uh, some examples from the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, we find lots of instances of God using secular uh, human governments that are, that are not Israel to carry out a certain task. But that does not mean that God morally approves of everything that the government does. And it also does not mean that God specifically instated or ordained individual authorities within that government to hold the offices that they do. And I believe it's Isaiah 10. I could be wrong about that. Listeners, look that up. I think it's Isaiah 10 in which Israel is unfaithful. They have sinned. They've turned away from God. And God uses the sinful, secular government of Assyria to punish Israel. But then right there in the same passage, God says that he did not approve of Israel's motivations there or their intentions. And he also punished Assyria for their own sins. And so my point here being, it's a limited use. It's a limited role that Mm -hmm. God has assigned the government to play. That does not mean that everything that the government does is God ordained or that uh, it has God's blessing. It does not mean that they are used by God to do everything that God wants in this world. Of course not. So how do we then, so I'm going to, I'm going to give a little bit of pushback to that because it seems like there, if God has a role for the government and maybe you, you use the word assigned and I could even say that you don't even have to use that word assigned. Like maybe God's like, well, sin exists, therefore eventually states exist and governments are going to use force. And you know what? I'm just going to use that to, I'm going to use that for good as opposed to just letting it be a force for evil. Right? So mm-hmm. you have God using the state in this sort of high level, high altitude kind of way, rather than saying, oh, I want this particular president and I want this particular, you know, prime minister and I want this particular king and whatever, this pharaoh and all that. Mm-hmm. That God isn't specifically saying, here, this person's, you know, my man for this era or whatever, um, as people have said recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. That God's not doing that. God's like doing the high level stuff, right? And not micromanaging. Yeah. So then, but if you... Any libertarian Christian is going to say, well, if you leave a role for the state to be used, then how do you, how does a Christian trying to avoid the third temptation, trying to not be allured by political power, not be tempted by the fact that, well, if I, let's just say there's like literally one very minor purpose of government, like make it as minarchist as you can even imagine. How does that person, how does this Christian not be allured by even getting the state to do that? Like, is that not a violation? Like, is there a conflict there? Or maybe, maybe you have, maybe, maybe that's, maybe I haven't thought that out very much. Yeah. Well, first, I think we, I think I've got to say that this is a really tough issue. And scripture is not perfectly clear on exactly how, what believers ought to be encouraging the government to do. But I do think that there is a limited God given role for the government to play, and the church should be encouraging the government to do that. And, uh, you know, in governments where we are in democratic governments, where we are given the right to have our voice heard, I think that's sort of the, that's sort of what we should be encouraging government to do, to fulfill Mm -hmm. this limited role of restraining harm to each other. Now, 
your question basically was about well, how does an individual Christian avoid seeing that as 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 sort of justification for saying, "Oh, well, we I'm going to get into government and make government do its only proper role." Yeah, like is that not them committing a sin? If you will, that's kind of oversimplifying it, but yeah, yeah, this is this is really tough because there's a whole lot of different things in Scripture that you're trying to to piece together here, mm-hmm. and because the early church prior to Constantine really had no political power. Paul never addresses this. Peter never addressed it. Jesus never really addressed it. Um, what, how exactly we should use our political power or influence to the degree that we have it. And so where scripture is fuzzy or unclear, I don't think we can really be dogmatic. But the view that I take is that, you know, like I said, Christians should encourage the government to fulfill a certain limited task mm-hmm. and where the government is overstepping that limitation, it is probably, or it, it could be crowding the church out of part of its role to play in society. So let me give an example there when it comes to the welfare state. The welfare state, in my view, is not part of that limited role that God has assigned the government to play of restraining evil and and, and punishing the worst human evil. And when the government steps in to feed the hungry and to care for the sick and the needy, the church's role is diminished in society. Governing authorities are, are God's agents of wrath, and we believers are God's agents of blessing. We are the ones whose job it is to carry out God's will on earth. And the state's job is to restrain people from harming each other so that we can carry out our mission. I think that because of the distinct roles God has designed church and state to play, each performs their given tasks best when they restrict themselves to those tasks. So when the government performs tasks meant for the church, like feeding the hungry and caring for the sick and vulnerable, the church's ability to act as God's agents of blessing in alleviating the effects of sin is diminished. And this in turn diminishes the church's ability to spread the gospel and it, it diminishes the gospel's attractiveness. Mm -hmm. So getting back to your question here, how do we prevent ourselves from giving into the temptation to use government for more than the role that God has assigned it to play. For the most part, I think it means being very, very careful when believers uh, want to join government or want to uh, play a part in, in government, be a legislator or be you know a president or something like that. Because we've seen how easy it is to give in to this third temptation. Now, Tertullian, who is a writer, an early church father, he once wrote, you know, asking this rhetorical question, can believers join the government? Can believers be, you know, members of, of government? And he, he said, well, can they prevent? Uh, and he lists, he lists all these things that re- members of the Roman government were expected to do, you know, carry out gladiatorial games. Mm. And, and, you know, they were very heavily involved in pagan religious practices and all these things. Uh, can they prevent themselves from imprisoning people and executing people? There's a whole lot of things that he says, well, Christians are called to do X 
and the government is called to do Y, can Christians prevent doing Y in carrying out their tasks as government officials? I, I think we should ask ourselves the same questions today. Can, can Christians uphold our Christian virtues and display the gospel, adorn the gospel while we take on offices of government? I think in some cases, yeah, I think we can. And, you know, I look to people like Rand Paul and Justin Amash, who I think do that very, very well. But we also see what happens to people like Rand Paul and Justin Amash, who go into government with their principles and with good intentions and with their desire to stick to those principles. They often get ostracized and marginalized. Nobody listens to them. Justin Amash literally left the Republican Party because uh, he stood by his principles. And, you know, you can disagree with some of those principles, especially as they concern Trump. Did he did he do all the right things? I don't know. But I know that he was sticking to his principles. Yeah. And I think that so very often happens with Christians. It's a it's a, a noble task. Don't get me wrong. But it's an extremely difficult task to try to invade government and change it from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I kind of understand where you're coming from because you on the one hand, Christians you wonder like should they never ever run for office? And and I realize that I don't I don't know about the faith of Amash or Rand Paul, but um you know, should should Christians ever sort of be in those situations like Ron Paul? I mean, we yeah. He's he's a Christian and and he ran for president and he was in Congress and he mm-hmm. worked effortlessly to uh, or effortfully I should say uh, with much effort <laughs> yeah. uh, to dismantle parts of the state that were harmful and so there's there's a sense in which there is a struggle for an individual to say well can I make a difference? And, you know, most people generally speaking think make a difference means, you know, grow the state or make it have its better, bigger influence. Yeah. And sometimes right. it means letting the state get out of the way. And, or, you know, I, I think that's to, uh, to one extent, that's one of the, um, the libertarian appeals to the Trump administration was because he was like dismantling things. Um, and they were like, Hey, look, he's dismantling the government. Well, that's not really what happened, but like there were, there were some <laughs> yeah. instances where it's like, all right, credit where credit's due. Right. You know, they, sure. they took away, they took away the government's power and such and such. Right. And so th- there's that appeal to sort of dismantle the state, which I think aligns with libertarianism and with, with sort of what you're saying. The, I want to end on one last thing though. And that is the fact that, you know, in 400 pages, right? So I actually, you know, you mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah. that your, you know, that your writing is better than your interviews. Well, I'll attest to the fact that I read the book in a much faster time frame than I typically <laughs> read books of this nature. Yeah. And not only was I just reading it, Austin, you had sent me a copy to give you feedback. So yeah. I had to, this wasn't just like, I, so this wasn't just like one of those, uh, you know, oh yeah, I'll read this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'll just kind of like get the the gist or skim the surface. Like I had to actually, you know, thoughtfully read it and I read it fairly quickly. So you're, you're definitely a good writer in 400 pages though. You don't say the word libertarian, libertarianism yeah. or any sort of the more common libertarian Christian buzzwords. Yeah. I'm interested in knowing why. And, and I think it's a really good choice. Yeah. Or maybe you just did it without realizing, you know, I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but uh, tell more about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's a, a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. He's a pretty well-known guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when I was researching 
for The Third Temptation, I picked up his book, Politics According to the Bible. It's a textbook. I mean, the thing is huge. It's like, I don't know, hundreds yeah, of pages. Yeah, no, I've seen that book. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's a brick. It's a doorstopper. But um, anyway, so I got this book. That's my opinion and, of it. <laughs> that's right. I mean, <laughs> I, I've, no, I've, gotten, I, I've I'm being I've facetious. Some, I know, I know you are. But I've gotten some value from from Wayne Grudem's writing. And, you know, I don't want to impugn his character or anything, but he starts this book, Politics According to the Bible, in which you think his whole point of writing this book is that he's wanting to help believers understand scripture and understand the overarching narrative of scripture, what God wants. And then in the introduction, he just comes right out and says, I am seeking to defend a conservative perspective in this book. You know, conservative by the American political definition of the word. And certainly, I don't think he ever veers from a pretty standard conservative view in every single one of the issues that he tackles throughout the book. And now I agreed with him on some things and I disagreed with him on some other things, but that just really, really rubbed me the wrong way that he just came out. And I, I suppose, you know, maybe he's just being honest rather than trying to sneakily, you know, support all these conservative views without calling them conservative. Right. Like act like he's unbiased where, where, with the bias. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you might just give him credit for at least admitting his bias, but sure. in admitting his bias, he was also telling the reader up front that I am seeking to defend a conservative view throughout this book. And that just really, really rubbed me the wrong way. You can't take Mm. the left-right political dichotomy as it exists in 20th century and 21st century America and apply that to scripture. That is Mm. backwards. It's anachronistic. And, you know, the same thing really goes with the word libertarian or conservative or liberal or any other 20th century or 21st century concept or, or political ideology, you can't take that and then go read scripture and try to use scripture to, to fit your preconceived political bias. That is something that I really tried hard not to do in this book. Now, I know I have a bias. I, I came kind of of political age during Ron Paul's presidential run. In 2008, I think I thought he was a kook. And then in 2012, I really, I listened to him a lot more. And I thought uh, like, was this, my experience. this makes yep. so much sense. I mean, I, I really, I came into my political thinking during the era of Ron Paul in 2012. And I know I have a bias. I've read Rothbard and Mises and Hayek. I've got Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson on my desk right now. I read it every time I go to the gym. You know, I'm, I definitely have a lot of libertarian leanings myself, but I wanted to approach scripture and just let it speak to us in the language and conceptually in the way that scripture wanted to speak to us. I wanted to form ideas and and concepts, principles, uh, and sort of an overarching political theology based on the narrative of scripture as it wants to be interpreted. It's sort of the, you know, we have these constitutional debates about uh, originalism and textualism. Mm -hmm. What what is that all about? Basically, it's trying to find the original intent, the original meaning of texts as they were meant to be understood. 
I think we should do the same thing with the Bible. And only then, once we've understood what the Bible is trying to say in its context, should we then try to apply that to you know, our 21st century left-right dichotomy and mm-hmm. uh, you know, our contemporary politics. And you know what? If it just so happens to align with a certain political ideology, then great. <laughs> but we shouldn't expect it to necessarily because it's written in a different time, in a different context. And the message, the sort of political theology that I found in researching scripture and just going through it with an eye toward, you know, relationship to government, it aligns very closely with the classical liberal tradition, you know, the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and, um, you know, of of other people that might in broad terms be called libertarian. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to be careful not to try to read into scripture my own sort of libertarian views. And that's why I have an entire chapter in the book on silent issues like immigration and uh, gun control or gun rights and, uh, you know, healthcare, um, global warming and climate change. And what should we do about climate change? You know, mm-hmm. these are issues that I, I think the Bible provides believers a lot of principles in area, every area of life, but the Bible does not provide believers knowledge of how to encourage the government to respond to things, to every little thing that comes up. And so on some things, we should just be willing to admit that the Bible is silent on that. And, and that's when, sure, you know, I think we can say that the best approach we should take is to, to look out for the welfare of society as a whole. And that's when we can sort of debate as believers what we think is the welfare of society as a whole. Well, I believe the welfare society as a whole depends on not an all-powerful state, but a very <laughs> not-so-powerful state. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and the, the, think about the reason for that, is that the church has a big, expansive, important role to play in society, and that evangelism and making the lives of others better, making the lives of the vulnerable and those in need better, are two sides of the same coin they reinforce each other and they help each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, think about Jesus's preaching, you know, out in the Judean countryside. When he fed the 5,000, I don't think it was just to keep people around. You know, I don't think it was just because they were hungry and he wanted to help them. He was also keeping them around to hear his message, to hear the message Mm -hmm. of the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, these two things, they help each other. When people come to the church to have their needs met, that is when they will also hear the gospel. And I think the gospel is, you know, we, we belittle it whenever we boil it down to just evangelism and salvation of souls and the relationship between a believer and God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gospel is so much bigger than that. The gospel is also about God through the church trying to alleviate the painful effects of sin and redeem creation that. Well, Austin, we could keep talking about so many issues, but there are 400 pages for our (laughs) listeners to read. Plenty. (laughs) So there's plenty. I thoroughly recommend it. Where can people get your book? I mean, I know the typical answer is, oh, you can get it on Amazon, but like, is there, you know, how do they reach you? Do you have a website or is it just like, hey, go get the book on Amazon? Yeah, well, definitely go get the book on Amazon. Leave a review. 
but you can also find me on Facebook. I would love to connect on Facebook. Uh, Austin Rogers on Facebook, R-O-G-E-R-S, no D. So yeah, I would love to connect on Facebook. Search for me on Facebook and just uh, friend me. Awesome. So the book title is The Third Temptation, Rethinking the Role of the Church in Politics. It has a beautiful red cover. You can get it on Amazon. I really appreciate you coming on, Austin. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.